Hello, welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, James Intracasa. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is Rob Schwab. Rob is a longtime game designer with credits from Green Ronin and Wizards of the Coast and a whole bunch of other places. Odds are, if you have even a bit of a D&D library, Rob has touched something in it. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, NobleKnight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that also exists online. They have any edition of any game, even out-of-print products. With Noble Knight, you can sell back your old gaming products that you aren't using. Let's hear a quick word from them, and then we'll roll the interview with Rob. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, Noble Knight is a brick-and-mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists online. Open 24-7 on the web. They have D&D and other cool RPGs. Any edition, any game. Even out-of-print products. And at a discounted price. That's out of control. Have a bunch of old game products collecting dust? Dangerous allergens. Noble Knight will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore. Looking at you, Indiana Jones RPG. So go to noblenight.com and get by it and sell it. Take back your life. And tell them the Tone Show sent you. All right, everybody, I am here with Rob Schwab today. Rob, say hello to everybody out there listening to the Gamer to Gamer podcast. Hello, everybody out there listening to the Gamer to Gamer podcast, and it's, uh, it's great to be here. I'm so excited. Yes, and we're excited to have you, Rob. I mean, you are one of the premier designers, dare I say, a level 40 NPC, if I Ooh, have ever... I like uh, that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So... Why don't you take us all the way back to to the first time you laid hands on a tabletop RPG? What game did you play? And were you a DM? Were you a, were you a player? What were you doing when you first laid hands on that first tabletop RPG? My neighbor, a guy named Kyle Crow, had a copy of Rahaja by Tracy and Laura Hickman uh, for a basic D and D. It was a green cover with a panther and an elfin lady on the front. And he gave this to me, he sold this to me for a quarter and I had always wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons, but I knew nothing about it. So re- not having the rule books or anything else to, to run with, I, I took the game that took the adventure and I unpacked it and re and built my own version of D and D, uh, for, for play. And that game was called passages. And this was all the way back in sixth grade. And me and uh, my closest 12 friends played Passages in the Playground. <laughs> and it was ridiculous. It was a terrible game. It would, you gained a level whenever you left. You went from one side of the map to the other. And my players grew wise to how fast they could level by just jump and where those breakpoints were. So it would jump from one side of the map back and forth to rapidly level up. And so I, that was my first lesson of game design and also my first uh, encounter with D&D. Um, shortly after that, my, uh, my best friend at the time was a guy named Landon. I uh, was a big D&D nerd kid, and I was curious, and so uh, he uh, invited me over to his house, and we built my first character, and it was a, a boring, miserable experience, <laughs> and I was so bored, I named the character Booger and called it a day, 
<laughs> but a couple of weeks later, maybe the next week, he invited me over again. And this time we were going to play D and D, and I had booger in hand with, uh, and this big kid named Travis was there too. We all had our characters. We played, we and we were going through Keep on the Borderland, and within five minutes, I had realized that I was completely wrong about D and D. D and D was totally freaking awesome, and I needed to play it as often as I possibly could. <laughs> and uh, so D- booger went away, and in came Ator the Fighting Eagle, named after the same, after the character from the terrible movie, and I became a lifelong fan of D and D. <laughs> so you were actually designing your own games in the sixth grade is that what you're saying yep i did a in seventh grade i designed a science fiction game and i did a couple others for a while and uh yeah i always and i, I had this habit of taking games apart and putting them back together in different ways and i know that's like kind of a it was a geeky thing to do because i was but i always i was always fascinated with how they worked and how they all kind of fit together that's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool that you were doing that. And then you, you finally laid hands on D&D. You, you got to play it. Uh, what movie was that uh, that the uh, eagle comes from? Uh, Ator, the Fighting Eagle, was the name of the movie. Uh, oh, and there was a gotcha. sequel called Shieldmaster, I believe. Ator <laughs> uh, was, a, was, a, was especially tasty because it had a, this terrible fight with a giant spider at the end. And you only, if I remember right, you only saw the giant limbs flailing about while this... <laughs> horrifically blonde muscle bound actor was was doing his best to defeat the spider it was terrible but you know it's a it it, it moved me as a child so then at what point do you get the idea that maybe you you want to start to make a career in games or how did you fall into it i know some people say i never had the idea i just sort of fell into it so what led to you then making games your career I had, like a lot of people, I had no plan of doing it. For me, game design was an unobtainable uh, profession. I was told when I was a kid that you know uh, you'll never do game design or play testing for a living. That's a that is that's that's a mythical land. And I had gone to college. I had gone to college once and totally screwed up and did McDonald's restaurant management for a while. And uh, then I got married and then I realized, you know, my wife's got her bachelor's and she's working on her master's. I should probably get off my ass and do something. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than getting a, a, rather than getting a a real degree that I could use, I ended up getting a (laughs) degree in English and philosophy. So I I wanted no, no money at all. And uh, (laughs) after I finished the degree, I turned around and went back to selling uh, liquor and, hardwood floors and ceramic tile and doing that for a while and i've been i was an avid gamer and i made all i, I designed campaigns uh, converted adventures did all the other stuff that most typical gamers did but i just had an english degree and i thought i'm going to become a i'm going to become a writer it's what i'm going to do and i'm going to do it some one way or the other mm-hmm. and uh mongoose publishing of all companies uh, was looking at the for, at the time for uh to add designers to their stable of writers wow. and they were looking for open calls so i pitched them the quintessential witch and I had, and they bought it, and uh, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. But I think, and I think about, you know, I had no idea what how to put a book together or what content I would put in this. Thing. I mean, I knew I knew generally what the content would be, and I kind of broke it up, and I kind of, it was kind of like uh, it was a couple steps away from looking at the thing. I only had the shadows on the wall in, the, in, in Plato's cave to look at, so I kind of aped this idea of a book. So don't go looking for it because it's not it's not representative of my work, but it was a. It was a. I also spent a ridiculous amount of time putting together an eighty thousand word rule book. I mean, it was ridiculous how much time I put into that, and uh, I mean months. And then I sat on. Then they, they sat on the book for I think six months to almost to a year, 
And I was talking about the quintessential witch was coming out, going to come out, going to come out. And it finally did come out. And then uh, I did another one for them. And then I started doing freelance work for Green Reading Publishing. And uh, eventually I landed a job as a line developer with them. Um, and I think, my, I think my big breakthrough product was the Grimm supplement for Fantasy Flight Games Horizon Line. And they were micro D20 games with uh, very uh, story-rich environments. And Grimm was a world uh, was a game set in a world of twisted fairy tales well before that became cliche. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And that's, but I think that's what gave me the recognition and kind of landed me, or at least put my feet on the path to making this a career. Nice. So what happens then after that? How, how does your career kind of take off from that moment? Well, you know, so as a developer for uh, Green Running, I learned I, it was also one of those kind of things where I had no idea what the hell I was doing, and I just kind of figured it out as I as I went. And you know, one of the, part of it was was learning the business of putting together books, and also the business of developing rule sets that were designed by other people, and seeing those rule sets that were raw before they you know before they went through editing or any of those kind of things. And that taught me even that taught me a whole lot about just game design in general. But what really kind of tipped me over was uh, I, Chris Pramus had was the had launched while well, he designed Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Second Edition, mm -hmm. and I got to work with him on that book. And um, he started work on other projects, and so I took over Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay uh, the the line. And under then we just and that game just took off. It went crazy. I think we won like a we won almost every award we were nominated for in the Annies that year, and uh, it was just a really crazy time. And so with that with that recognition for the work on Warhammer plus uh, the other work we were doing on D20 stuff, uh, and I designed, um, I helped design Witch Hunter, The Invisible World for the uh, for Paradigm Concepts. I designed a Song of Ice and Fire role-playing for Green Running Publishing, and I was also doing freelance work for Wizards of the Coast on 3rd edition, doing stuff like Tome of Magic and um, the uh, Tyranny of the Nine Hells, or the, the second of the Demon Devil books. Uh, Wizards decided they liked me enough that they offered me a contractor position to be a, uh, a staff designer from afar. So I stayed in Tennessee and I produced for them about 40,000 words a month from 2008 until we started work on 5th uh, edition D&D. Wow. Right. Uh, so there were some months where like your 40,000 words are 20 articles for DDI. <laughs> uh, your next uh, this month, you're working on Player's Handbook two and Player's Handbook three, and the other, and just about everything else. Which is why you'll see my name on almost everything that came out for fourth edition, at least in some capacity. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was gonna say your name is all over the place on fourth, and like you said, on third, Player's Handbook two in third, and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. And and like you said, you also were part of the team that uh, started fifth edition D and D. You know, which is now taking the role-playing world by storm. So thank you for all of the crazy work that you have done for this. You're game very welcome. Of. You're very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Fifth edition was kind of the, the crowning achievement of my career. It was a, it was, it was an interesting process because it was, you're working with, I got, you know, first of all, I got to develop a really, uh, a really great friendship with Bonnie Cook and Bruce Cordell. Mm. Uh, Cause when we were the, when we were the kind of the core team, uh, you know, we were just be locked in a room for hours and hours on end and just kind of put the stuff together. And then as a team evolved and as the needs of the game changed a bit and uh, and we get closer and closer to the finish line, uh, you know, I got to see, I got to help shepherd that game to its, uh, to its final form. And that was fun. And I'm really, you know, I'm really proud to have been invited to be on that team and also to have helped kind of shape the, the way people play D&D &D now. 
But here we are, now we have 5th edition and, and everything is awesome. You are, are going to be moving on to a Kickstarter campaign that's going to be launching sometime in March. It looks like this is a Shadow of the Demon Lord, is that correct? That is correct, that is correct. March 12th, in fact, is the launch day for the Kickstarter. So uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord is, all right, let me, let me back up and give you, I'll give you the elevator pitch first. Uh, <laughs> It is a high-octane game of horror fantasy in which you play in battle survivors uh, in a world gone horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, and uh, it, is, it is full of blood, <laughs> excrement, demons, cults, madness, corruption, everything. You, every, all, the, all, the, all the cool bits that make uh, dark fantasy fun. A little bit longer pitch is uh, really the kind of the, well, there are two parts. One uh, was the realization that a lot of what a role-playing game's promise, the three- to five-year campaign, is almost impossible to realize in the modern climate of gaming. And as we get older and as a hobby continues to gray, uh, we have less and less time to devote to, to sitting around a table and meeting with our friends. And so the game engine that I built for this was one that allows you to play a role-playing game in a somewhat traditional manner, but in a much more reasonable time frame. Uh, so a full campaign of... Shadow of the Demon Lord can be played in eleven game sessions, and uh, eleven game set. And each at the end of each game session, your character your characters level up, and so you are done. From you, you start with no level characters, and you go all the way up to level ten. You finish your last story, and you've completed your campaign, which means you've got a time investment of fifty five hours on the on the top end to do a a full traditional RPG experience. Uh, on the story side, uh, I also realized that. Almost every D and D campaign that I have I have created or started and pointed towards some catastrophic event that the that we would be building towards as the story unfolded. And as a guy who's run countless, and I mean I'm not using I'm not exaggerating with countless, but more than I can count D and D and other fantasy RPG games, we never almost none of them ever get to that final scene where I really you know really hope that things happen. Like, for example, Age of Worms, right? Mm -hmm. When Caillou shows up and all the worms are falling off his body, it's a really cool scene. It's a really awesome end piece. But I've started Age of Worms four times. I've never, <laughs> I, never got through, I never got through the third, the third adventure. And mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Shackled City adventure path was also one where we played and played and played, and we it fizzled out with a TPK to uh, halfway through the second to last adventure. So I realized that if RPGs are building towards this event, and the event is supposed to be the most exciting moment in the campaign, why not just make the campaign all about that event? And so in Shadow of the Demon Lord, the uh, rather than make delay the gratification of Orcus crawling out from the abyss, or uh, Atropus, the world-born dead, drifting close to the world, or you know the uh, some sort of global pandemic, or nature gone awry, or corruption and magic, or any of those other kind of things. Just make that the background of your campaign. Nice, and that's what Shadow of the Demon Lord does. Nice, nice, and of course the the big event here is that the Demon Lord uh, is is out, right? Right. Well, he's uh, the Demon Lord is a malevolent force that lives in the gaps between realities, and as uh, mortals and immortals have done stupid things in the world, the boundaries to the void start to weaken. And mm. uh, he can't come through until those boundaries are shattered. However, his shadow does leak through those cracks. And wherever his shadow falls, horror follows. And uh, horror is the, or the, the global catastrophe, the catastrophe that kind of defines the gameplay uh, is whatever the game master decides. And the game includes uh, uh, 10 to 12 templates that uh, give you these catastrophic events. 
So the shadow falls on the gates of the underworld, which is where the underworlds where all mortal souls end up so they can forget who they are. If the shadow falls on the gates of the underworld, souls that, of, of dead mortals have nowhere to go. And so they linger in their bodies, and so you have a zombie apocalypse. If the shadow falls on some druidy dude and he, is, uh, and he goes crazy as a result, he might release the global pandemic to wipe out civilization because he feels that uh, it is uh, some sort of infestation that needs to be resolved. Or it might fall on some sort of Godzilla-type monster that comes crawling out of the ocean and stops all over the countryside. Or it might just result in a bigger crack and a demon prince shows up and uh, starts making everyone's day really poor. And uh, there's also, it could be in the Archmage, where every time you cast a spell, you're at risk of mortal corruption, a la Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. So all those kind of things are in play. And they can be, you can have one of those things defining your entire campaign, or it could be something that switches. So you might start off with um, an undead or a zombie apocalypse, and then by, set by the third game or the third adventure, it might switch to the global pandemic, then it might switch to corrupted magic, and these are things that the characters might be trying to grapple with as they're trying to fight against the, uh, the Demon Lord's imminent arrival. That sounds awesome. So what is the rule set for this game? Uh, it is familiar in some respects because I, I felt that in some respects, so in the sense that it's familiar, it uses a D20 for task resolution. Mm-hmm. But it's also super, super simple. And the reason why I wanted to make it super, super simple was that I, I realized that the people I game with, I have hyper-invested RPG-er nerds like myself. And then I have people who I drink beer with that like to play D&D, but don't think about it, <laughs> but don't think about it once the game's over with. And that means that when you want to try to set, when you want to play an RPG experience, and they want to play D&D or a, D, or a game like Warhammer Fantasy Role Play, play or any other kind of mainstream RPG, when they want to do that, they don't want to have to sift through 500 pages of text to figure out how to make their character. They want to make a decision and, and play. So on the character side, you're create, as you're playing the game, you're always creating your character. So rather than making a bunch of decisions up front, you make one big decision when you first when you create your starting character. And then when you come sit down to play the next time, you make another decision about your character based on what you did in the first game. So for example, let's say you and I are playing Shadow of the Demon Lord, and we have my friend Nat running this game, and we're both in it. In this game, I'm going to play a human, and you're playing a clockwork. Uh, the clockworks are people who are made of, of, of cogs and gears and springs, right? We got awesome. that. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So you're the clockwork, and I'm the human, and we play in this first game. And in the first game, you spend most of that time punching people in the face with your, your metal fists. Mm-hmm. And in the, fir- in the first game, I end up finding this horrific tome that's wrapped in barbed wire, and there's a human tongue nailed to the cover, and there's some really nasty spells, like one that'll turn you inside out, and one that makes a bad, uh, my target hatefully crap for as long as I concentrate, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so we, we finish the first story or adventure, and we're done. So then next week, we come back to play, You decide we have to make a decision. And you decide, well, I spent that first game fighting, so I'm going to go ahead and become a warrior. And I decide I'm going to become a magician because I like the whole spellcasting thing. Then after we play two games of the warrior-magician choice, and then we make another big choice later on. And then another big choice when you choose your expert path, and that is um, a way for you to either refine what you previously chose or take your character in a different direction. Huh. And so then, you, then at level seven, you make a master path choice. Now, none of, these cho- none of these path choices have requirements, so you can choose whatever the hell you want. So you could be a clockwork warrior who decides, I'm going to be a thief and then become a, an aromancer, so a master <laughs> of air magic. And that allows you to kind of organically grow your character in a way that makes sense based on the story. It also keeps it interesting. So if you want to be hyper-specialized, I want to be Legolas, the greatest archer in the world that's ever known, then I just go elf, warrior, or, uh, archer, sharpshooter, and my character knows what he does and does it really well. But if I want to be Conan, 
I might start warrior, thief, and then barbarian or something like that, right? To insulate, you know, like with third, with like a multi-classing in, in D&D style games, there are a lot of traps you can fall into. I, I remember the last third edition character I played was this badass uh, warrior type character and he had four prestige classes and they all of the stuff funneled into his fortitude modifier. So we're like level 10 or something crazy and uh, my will modifier was plus zero or something plus one plus zero. But my fortitude modifier was plus 16. <laughs> and just for I'm probably exaggerating, but these are the numbers I remember. So I, could, I had a, I was, I could absorb poison. I could, I could roll around. I could, I could drink water out of the sewers, but I mm-hmm. could not. Act, but if you try to charm me, it was over. <laughs> uh, Demon Lord is uh, insulates you from making suboptimal choices because the previous choices continue to feed into your character's development. So when you choose warrior, you're going to get benefits for being a warrior when your group level is one, two, five, and seven, uh, eight. And then expert gives you three benefits, and then master gives you two. So it's, you're kind of, and so by the time you're done, you've got this really cool puzzle piece or a picture that's made of all these different pieces you've put together based on how the story evolves. Wow, I really love that because there's a lot of times when I'm playing a game like D and D or something, and my players have begun to act in a way that maybe is is more like another class. Like, oh, you know, I'm, for some reason, I'm really into nature now, and I really feel like I should be taking a, a level of druid, but that's going to slow my wizard progression, and I don't want to be punished for that, and that kind of thing. This sounds like not only are you encouraged to make choices that are in line with the way your character is acting and evolving, that the story is so much more interesting if you actually make those choices based on what your character's story is rather than where all your power is going to go. Very much. And you know, the, the other part, if you talk about the, the, the wizard character who you think about some nature stuff, the other thing that Demon Lord does allows you to construct your own spell lists. So you're not <laughs> locked. So if there's not, there's no such thing as a, like a mage list that these spells only belong to the mage and these spells only belong to the cleric rather spells are organized by uh, big rappers called traditions and when you discover a tradition you learn the most minor basic spell i guess you'd call it a cantrip from that tradition wow. and that's a spell that you can typically cast over and over again so if you learn fire if you discover the fire tradition you would be able to ability to create flame with just whatever you want and if you decided you discovered well if you just you decide your character discovers a battle tradition you learn how to cast the spell Celerity, which allows you to move really quickly. Uh, and, and then later on, you can do stuff like Arc of Death or Ubiquitous Assault and other really cool uh, cinematic-y kind of, kind of stuff. If you, as you go, so that means that if you choose a magician as your novice path and you're getting to decide what your traditions that your character discovers are, you could, you could or you the traditions your character discovers, you could, you could choose nature, you could choose fire, and you could choose technomancy. And so you could be a gun-toting, uh, you know, Greenpeace activist that can cast spells. That nice. it's you can build what, and you can build that whatever way you want. Nice, nice. And what is the uh, you know what's the sort of era? Is this medieval fantasy? Is this uh, you know post-apocalyptic modern? What's what sort of era do you picture this story taking place in? It is a hair. It is a breath away from the industrial uh, revolution, uh, and it is uh, steeped in apocalyptic horror yeah yeah this is my so, kind of game so it, you're gonna get you're gonna get uh airships you'll get clockwork people you'll get uh any other thing i also realized is that so many people ask for guns in their fantasy games mm-hmm. and i just like why would you why would we ever deny them so guns are available <laughs> right out of the gate a lot of the world decisions uh that i made going into this was trying to unclench and say you know what people play these games just to have a good time 
So I don't really care if you have guns and you're casting nature spells. I don't really care because no one cares. Uh, if if you shouldn't really, it shouldn't matter, right? Right. Uh, so just do what the hell you want and uh, and and tell gross and disgusting stories and scare the crap out of your players and and play quickly and do it over and over again. That's kind of the the ethos of this game. Man, this sounds like I have wanted a game like this for a long time. I'm very excited. So we're we're gonna see the Kickstarter drop March 12th. Yeah. So we're, the the base game is gonna be if the very if we hit just if we just fund. The game takes a form of a 128-page color softback book, and that will give you everything you need to make make a character, play a character, all the way up from zero to ten. Uh, rules for running the uh, running the game, and also a small bestiary in the back, plus spells and all that stuff. So it's going to be jam packed full of coolness, but it'll be it'll be a little bit thin. Uh, stretch goals as we unlock them, we'll upgrade the size of the book and uh, eventually turn the book into a hardcover book. And uh, you know if we if if we hit the moon, uh, we'll have a really, really big, saucy, sexy book. To go along with that, we're, uh, I have reached out to every, I actually pretty much cashed in every favor that was owed to me uh, and every friendship that, I, that I've ever made <laughs> in the business. Uh, stretch goals, as we all other stretch goals we're unlocking, are going to feature adventures written by Bruce Cordell, Monty Cook, Chris Premis, Jason Bullman, uh, Stephen Brad McFarland, uh, Matt Forbeck, uh, Steve Winter, Skip Williams. Uh, Steve Townsend, the list goes, Miranda Horner, the list goes on and on and on. Wow. And so every time we hit a stretch goal or where we hit certain stretch goals, we get new story packs from these, from these designers. So if you want to see the Demon Lords interpret, as interpreted by um, Cam Banks, for example, uh, we, can, we, just have to, we just have to hit that, that stretch goal. We're also going to do fiction. Uh, Demon Lord fiction was we kind of, kind of reveal some of the world and also kind of give you mood music, I guess. Uh, and I've recruited Richard uh, Lee Byers, Eric Scott to be, uh, Aaron Evans, uh, James Louder, and uh, Elizabeth Bear even of uh, Dust Fame. So we've got a uh, we got a whole cast of awesome rogues and scallywags that are that are pitching in to help make this thing happen. Yeah, and I am sure our listeners are familiar with a lot of those names. Aaron Evans was actually our guest on Gamer to Gamer last month. Um, oh, yeah. So this uh, is really, it's really awesome. And of course, you know, Eric's got to be and Richard Lee Byers, like uh, Monty Cook and Bruce Cordell and Steve Winter writing adventures. Guys, come on. It's going to be, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, you know, as we, once, I'm not going to release the full schedule for the stretch goals until we hit funding, but uh, I do, but it, we're definitely spreading the word that we're going to have a, a really, really great cast of awesome and insanely talented people working on this uh, on adventures for the game, and it's going to be great. The other thing about the adventures, too, is that they're short. An adventure typically plays one page of text for hour of gameplay, which means that every adventure is two to four pages long. Nice. Nice. That's awesome That's, and manageable. Yeah, so if, you don't, so if you don't have time to repair for your game, just uh, 15 minutes before people show up, read two to four pages, and you're ready to go. <laughs> that's uh that's perfect because sometimes i feel like i might as well just you know write my own thing uh rather than read 30 pages to prepare for oh yeah 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 I, it's it terrifies me to think about spending a lot of money on a big sexy adventure and then not having a chance to read it or then the players choosing something that takes them way 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 outside of the adventure's bounds or scope Right. Then, you're out, then you're out all that cash, and you don't get to realize the cool story that was in there. So rather than even try to play that game, I've decided that yeah, we're just going to play. We don't want to have any kind of breaks. We just play the play an adventure in a night, and whatever it ends, it ends, and then 
the group levels and we move forward. <laughs> That's awesome. So is this the game that you are currently playing a lot right now? It's just about all I'm doing right now. I'm, uh, I'm still doing some work with um, Cypher System with Monte Cook Games. Uh, I'm working on Shotguns and Sorcery. To, that was a Kickstarter ran, I think, a few months ago and closed and we funded. So I'll be doing the design, the, the engine work for that game, while Matt Forbeck will be doing the story. But that's kind of a background project right now. And uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord has been almost everything that I has consumed pretty much my entire life uh, for the last, well, for the last 14 months. Uh, and to, especially to go from a project like Fifth Edition and now to this thing, like you must be exhausted. Yeah, I am because it's like it, it was. I, I was I was joking just the other week about how, uh, or just the other day about how, you know, I when I left Wizards, I could have designed any role, role, any kind of role playing game I wanted. I could have done a very narrow, very focused experience where you're playing parasites inside of a human body and you're trying to spread to another host. That could have been a role playing game I designed. But no, let's just do another big sandbox game because that's what I need to do. <laughs> Are you like sitting down and playing this game with a group currently? I have uh, three playtest groups that I oversee, and then there are five other playtest groups that are ongoing, and that I've been going to uh, doing in-store visits since we announced the game in October of 2014. And that that means I go to all over the southeast and do three to five hour get demos and signing books and doing that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, so I've been I've been I've been running Demon Lord pretty much every week, two to three times a week. It seems like. So how how long have you had this idea for Demon Lord? Uh, the Demon Lord idea really crystallized. I'd say right around January of 2014, I started kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. I was still wrapping up deep work on D and D at the time, but um, I, I knew my contract was up, so I was looking ahead to the future. And uh, but I really but it, a lot of the ideas about how we play role playing games, or rather the inability of role playing games to kind of maintain pace with how we play i uh, really crystallized for my own gaming experiences just knowing just talking to people at who want to play and are intimidated by a stack of books that would prevent them from making a character quickly and easily or the time commitment well i would i would love to run a game but i'm not going to be able to do that for two years you know just those kind of obstacles that are pretty easy to overcome if you make those your design goals from the very start you know, it's it's awesome to see it in this game, but I wonder if those principles could certainly be brought to any type of game. You know, it might be cool to see this system wind up with a with a couple different games under it. Oh no, I've got a I've got two other worlds. Well, yeah, just for just because you asked. But, <laughs> uh, the plan is that if we do that, if if Demon Lord funds and we do pretty well with the Kickstarter, then I'm going to do a number of worlds that will be plugged in. They'll be plugins for the game. Yes. So the, the, the core game assumption is that you're playing at this pre-industrial uh, revolution, apocalyptic fantasy. But I think that you can use Shadow of the Demon Lord to tell different kinds of stories. And one of the ones that I want to do is, uh, it was, it was, uh, is to inject Mad Max into, into the game. So you give, add rules for cars and, and a bigger uh, selection of gun porn. And you're racing through a desert world looking for water and gasoline fighting cannibals and demons that stumble out of the out of dust storm stuff like that and that's just one that's just one example of uh, how we're going to do these plugins is that you don't have to we, we won't have to you won't have to redesign the entire game to accommodate different worlds because the game system the core engine is so flexible that all that stuff is just it's just icing on the cake you certainly got my money and i'm sure you've got a few other listeners now that they have heard this if they want to uh, stay in tune and know the moment the kickstarter drops uh what should they do 
Uh, very first thing to do, if you're on Facebook, go like Schwalbe Entertainment on Facebook. Uh, we can follow us on, um, on Twitter at Schwalbe underscore Ent. Uh, you can also go to my website, which is schwalbeentertainment.com. And there you'll see art previews and my re- weekly blog posts where I talk about the game design and what I'm doing with the game. And then, uh, and, uh, yeah, and those are probably the best places to do it. Uh, so, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, and FallBearEntertainment.com are the best places to go. Where can people find you if they want to, you know, get in touch with you, drop you a line, follow your rants on Twitter? Where's the best place to do that? On Twitter, I am uh, at RJ Schwalb. On Facebook, I am Robert J. Schwalb. And uh, you'll find me by the disturbing profile pics I post. Uh, <laughs> we I'm also on G plus as Robert J. Schwalb and LO as Robert J. Schwalb and uh, pretty much everywhere else. Yeah. Just, you, I'm pretty easy to find. Well, Robert, thank you very much for coming on gamer to gamer today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I had a really good time. People. If you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J A M E S I N T R O C A S O. Or you can go to the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com, and leave a comment there. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world that I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Rob for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner and Sam Dillon. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Remember, never give up. Life is a game. Eventually, you gotta roll a 20.